0: Welcome to Destiny Spirit Church. What I would like to share with you tonight, I would like to talk about kingdom unity. You know, unity gets talked about a lot. It's important all through scripture. I mean, we see the testimony of the power of unity, the blessing of unity, the provision of unity the encouragement, the strength, the multiplied effort. I mean, any, anywhere you look in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the importance of unity is highlighted throughout. And I think it's something that, because it's so foundational, a lot of times we can kind of just gloss by it and not think too much about it and think, oh, yeah, well, you're, we're in unity. Um, and I think there can be a lot of really misperceptions and misapplications of what it means to be in unity. And so I just wanted to look at that tonight. As I said, all through Scripture, unity is highlighted. It's one of those things that gets God's attention, you know. There are good things and bad things (laughs) that will get God's attention. And unity is one of them. Um, The story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is a a classic one of... And it's so interesting to me because it's, it's after, you know, the flood... And after Noah built the ark, so, you know, we'd already had to where people multiplied the earth head. Scripture says, you know, evil in their hearts all the time. And God's like, nope, we're done with this. Noah, pack it in. I'm wiping everybody out. We're starting over. <laughs> it was like God called a do-over. And so after all that's happened, then we've got, you know, two chapters of basically genealogies. It's just highlighting all of Noah's families and their kids, and it's just a bunch of lists of names, but... Chapter 11, in the middle there, is plopped this little story about the Tower of Babel in the midst of all these genealogies, which kind of struck me as an interesting place for that to be. But when you think about it, it's like God was highlighting how the families grew and were spreading and multiplying in the earth. And, you know, he couldn't wipe everybody out again because he had already promised that he wouldn't do that. (laughs) So it got to where, you know, you have everybody getting together, and the scripture says that they had one common language— And they all got together and said, you know, let's make bricks. Let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. You know, their motivation was pride, self-reliance and pride. And it gets God's attention. I mean, that scripture says, you know, God said, let's go down and see what they're doing. (laughs) You know, it wasn't like they said, hey, God, come bless this tower. Or what do you think about this? I mean, they didn't ask God at all. But that unity of everybody being united and coming together in that common language that got God's attention. Now, granted, the unity was for the wrong purpose, but it got God's attention enough that he came down and he said, you know, if they come together and are united and do this, nothing will be impossible for them. I mean, God acknowledged (laughs) with total unity, nothing is impossible. And in this case, it was going to lead them down to, you know, ultimate rebellion. And, you know, God has always taken pretty drastic measures out of love for us to not let us live in a perpetual state of, of sin, of rebellion. I mean, the Garden of Eden where he put the, the cherubim with the flaming swords in front of the tree of life after Adam and Eve ate of the apple. I mean, it took me a long time to grasp that. Man, that was a massive act of love. <laughs> it was very drastic <laughs> and very harsh, but it was an act of love. Out of his mercy, he didn't want us to live, you know, eat of the tree of life at that point until there had been redemption and coming down and at that point when God's like no if they do this nothing will be impossible and he's like yeah now we're putting a stop to this (laughs) and he confused their language and scattered them throughout the earth you know he intentionally broke up that unity because he knew it was so powerful that with the wrong motivation it would be destruction for mankind but that unity, I mean, it got God's attention. I just, I always find that interesting. God's like, hmm, let's go down and see what they're doing. <laughs> like he didn't already know, but that man, when you suddenly strike God's attention, you know, worship gets God's attention. There's many good things that get God's attention. I want to get his attention for the good things. But if you'll turn to Second Chronicles chapter 30, I want us to look at another instance of unity and the power of unity and what comes out of being united for good purposes this is in the middle of the little backstory all of the cycle of good king bad king fight peace good king bad king fighting peace we've got you know first and second kings and first and second chronicles and basically it's like You had a good king who served the Lord. You had a bad king, a good king, a bad king. And even, I mean, they never hung on to unity very long, even to the point to where they were divided between the northern and the southern kingdoms. You know, Israel and the people of God were not even united as one nation for a good portion of that time. And so this is where we're all in the middle of this. And we get into Hezekiah. We got a good king after, (laughs) on the heels of a bad king. And they hadn't celebrated the Passover in a while. Um, because they hadn't been able to round up enough people to consecrate themselves. They didn't even have enough unity to get all that together. So they weren't keeping the ordinances and things. They weren't celebrating the festivals. Um, you know, and they had just prior to that, in chapter 29, you know, talks about they were worshiping the pagan gods and making sacrifices to you know, all the other deities. So you've got Hezekiah now who's trying to bring some unity, some godliness back in. And we won't read the whole chapter, but, you know, basically, he sent out letters and notices to everybody in, you know, Judah and the northern kingdoms, like, come on down, let's celebrate the Passover, you know, let's get things back on track. He had cleared out the temple, wanted to get things back in order. So, in about verse 18 and 22, starting at about 18, so they all get together, basically, and they're going to start the Passover it even says, actually in verse twelve, you know, all the people in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered, following the word of God. You know, I mean, right there God had given people unity. So they come together, and in verse 18 says, Although most of the many people who came for Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover, contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord, who is good, pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even if he is not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. I mean, that's pretty amazing. They all finally come together in unity. They're not even doing it right. I mean, (laughs) they're breaking the laws of Moses. You were supposed to be ceremonial clean in order to partake of the Passover meal. But because of the unity, you know, God honored What the heart was, the spirit of (laughs) obeying the Lord, superseded the written law. And God even let them celebrate the Passover because of the unity, even breaking the rules, and healed all of them. It continues on, the Israelites who were present in Jerusalem celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with great rejoicing, while the Levites and priests sang to the Lord every day, accompanied by the Lord's instruments of praise. Um, The Passover, this uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day festival. And they get to the end of it, and Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good understanding of the service of the Lord for seven days. They ate their assigned portion, offered fellowship offerings, and praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. So they've come together in unity. They've finally done this. They're getting back on track. So in verse 23, I think this is interesting. The whole assembly then agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. I mean, it wasn't like a, okay, well, those of you who need to go, get back and tend your business. I mean, it wasn't like they just dismissed and some left and some stayed. But they all agreed. Let's keep <laughs> the worship going. Let's, let's keep the celebration and the festival going. So they celebrate the festival seven more days. <laughs> Verse 24, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, provided 1,000 bulls and 7,000 sheep. I mean, that's one heck of a festival. <laughs> For the assembly and the officials provided them with thousands of bulls and 10,000 sheep and goats. A good number of priests consecrated themselves. And finally getting everybody back into their areas of service where they were supposed to be. Back into unity of what their purpose was. What God had ordained and anointed each one of the 12 tribes of Israel for. And the entire assembly in verse 25 of Judah rejoiced along with the priests and Levites. All who had assembled from Israel including the aliens who had come from Israel and those who lived in Judah. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. I mean, this was some serious unity. And if you look at what happens next, after you would have people come into such unity of purpose and worship and serving the Lord, in verse, or chapter 31, verse 1, when all this had ended, the Israelites who were there, went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh. And after they had destroyed all of them, they went back to their own towns. It was like after a period of total unity of purpose and worship, that's when they whooped up and cleansed the entire area of the pagan worship, of all the idolatry. It was like after the unity came, then you saw a powerful move of God upon them to go through and just cleanse and get on track. I mean, it's really, it's, and it was because of the agreement. They all agreed. They all came together. Jesus talked about unity all the time. Um, In John chapter 17, this is his prayer right before he's about to be crucified. You know, they've had the Last Supper. He's praying for everybody. He's praying for his disciples. And his prayer for all of the believers is that they may be one. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't pray that all the believers would have really good doctrine and really good truth, or that all the believers would have powerful encounters with the power of God, or that all believers would work mighty miracles, even though he promised all that stuff. When it came down to Jesus had to pray a prayer for all believers, his prayer was for unity. I find that really interesting, you know, I think probably because the unity is the much harder (laughs) of all of us to achieve. You know, I mean, it only takes being in that place of powerful faith for a moment to heal someone from the dead. But boy, to stay in unity, <laughs> that's way harder. I mean, I think God knew what a problem we would have with that, and that's why Jesus prayed that prayer, It was to pray for us to be in unity. And, you know, the Word talks about that unity was what was going to be a testimony to everyone who saw the people of God. I mean, yes, powerful works, yes, our words, yes, our witness, yes, our life, But the unity was going to be the testimony. That's what he prayed. Also, Matthew 18.20 talks about, you know, very familiar scripture where two or three are gathered in my name, two or more, depending on the version you're reading. You know, um, anything you ask for or agree upon in prayer will be done for you. Or if two or three are in my name, you know, there I am with them. It's the agreement of, you know, God knew unity was tough. So he didn't, you know, say, if you can get 100 people, To be together in my name, you know, for one purpose. He's like, if you can get two or three of you to agree, (laughs) I'm with you. My presence is there. If you can get two or three of you to be in unity, you can see me move on my behalf. You will see my, you know, me answer your prayers. It's the two, you know, two or three coming into agreement. It's that's how powerful agreement is. It doesn't even have to be an entire nation. It's you know, two or three. And the thing that I find really interesting is that's in Matthew 18, and you know what's right before that, where Jesus is talking about, if you can come together, two or three, whatever you agree upon, right before that, Matthew 18 is the classic, how do we deal with when somebody sins against us? How do we deal with offenses? Go to the person, talk with them. If that doesn't work, then bring somebody else along. It's like, you know, it's all about the relationships, He's given instruction on how the relationships work because, guys, if two or three of you come together, we really take those two portions of Scripture and never seem to put them together, but they're right next to each other in the Word. It's all about instructions about relationship and the blessing and the power that comes from the unity. And I think unity, I mean, it gets really... um, It can be misapplied and, and can be really warped at times. We take a lot of things to extremes, you know, we're human, it's our human nature to get a little carried away one (laughs) extreme or the other to get a little zealous. And Some of the extremes that you can see with um, unity, you can have people take it to the extreme of everybody has to 100% agree all the time and if you ever have a different opinion or, you know, and you can see this in some very legalistic churches too, if you ever disagree with, you know, you don't ever disagree with the pastor. Because well then you're not in unity and you're sinning and you're going to hell or you know and and really it gets to the point of it can be such an extreme of emphasis on unity that people really abdicate their personal responsibility to seek the Lord on what is truth and what is right. Because you you can never question, you can never disagree, and so therefore people just stop thinking. I mean you, you hear of these awful stories of things that have happened in cults and you wonder how they get to that point but it's because of a such a warped presentation of either authority it, can, it doesn't necessarily have to be unity but you know you can be in unity and still seek out truth <laughs> for yourself you should you know Paul commended the Bereans for doing that that they listened to everything that was preached and then they went back and searched it out for themselves to know that it was the truth of God so you know, we can have the extreme on one side. We can have the, um, people have really misapplied the whole unity concept on the other end to justify breaking relationships left and right. You know, we've got the very often used scripture out of Amos 3.3. How can two walk together unless they are agreed? Well, I just can't agree with that. So, you know, boom, and they're they're gone. You know, if they don't agree about the color of the carpet, they're gone. <laughs> Break relationship, leave the church. And, you know, it's like, that's, if you look at that scripture, that's obviously, it's to an extreme for people to use that kind of excuse, but it's not what the scripture is saying, depending on the translation you read. Um, you know, Some say, how can two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? I think is the NIV, New American Standard, is how can two walk together unless they've made an appointment? The point isn't that you have to agree on everything. The agreement part is that we're agreeing to walk together. <laughs> the agreement part is we have a common purpose, a vision, a destination. We have something that, regardless of what might be going on a little bit, we know there's a higher purpose, and we're agreeing to stick to that and move forward together. That's our point of agreement. And that's really true kingdom unity is, you know, true kingdom unity isn't that you never disagree with anybody, or that you have a different opinion, or that you even have a fight with somebody. I mean, my goodness, you're not human if you haven't had a disagreement with somebody at some point. But the kingdom unity is that we have the higher purpose. You know, God didn't make carbon copies of Adam and Eve and we're not all alike. God didn't want uniformity, but he wanted the unity of that we've come together for a reason. It's his name. It's his purposes. And whatever might come between us in the day-to-day life, we understand that we have a higher reason for maintaining unity and for maintaining relationship, to whatever degree that is. Obviously, the church at large, the global church, I don't have a personal relationship with the entire church on the planet Earth. <laughs> you know, that's pretty much impossible. But should we come together sometime on this Earth before we meet in eternity, we should have a unity of spirit, a unity of heart, for the reason that we're together. You know, Matthew 12, actually it's in, I think, almost all the Gospels, except maybe John. Um, Jesus said, you know, every kingdom divided against itself will come to ruin. And every city, and he even kind of broke it down, every city and every household divided against itself will not be able to stand. You know, I find it interesting. It's not every city or every nation that suffers an attack, but it's divided against itself. When you lose the unity amongst yourselves, that's when the ruin comes. That's when destruction comes. You know, the enemy to unity is division. The opposite of unity is division. And, you know, a lot of times the devil needs no help. We just divide ourselves. (laughs) We can blame the devil. Oh, it was an attack. Oh, God tried to take this person out or bring misunderstanding. No, you know, a lot of times it really is not the devil. It's just us. (laughs) We're quite good at bringing division ourselves. (laughs) And it really, you know, when you think about major divisions a giant, you know, a church split or, you know, a civil war in a nation. These kinds of divisions don't just happen overnight. A church, it doesn't go from perfectly fine to having a church split the next morning after the pastor preaches something. It doesn't happen, you know. These things build because the breakdown of unity happens on the ground level of relationships. It's the interpersonal stuff, to where we start having the breakdown. And then it moves up into the cities and towns or if it's a church or an organization. And so it's really, it's that ground level of relationships where unity is so important and is the challenge. And I wanna cover a few things that um, I see as some of the real common ways that relationships have the breakdown. Um, For the longest time I said it was, you know, there were two things two common things that cause relationships to break down. But the more I was thinking about it and studying some things, I'm like, no, it really, it's probably three. <laughs> you know, there's probably, you know, hundreds. But, you know, three, the three basic categories of why we see a breakdown in unity and why relationships fall apart is, one, sin. They don't survive sin. <laughs> that happens in the relationship. Two, the relationship doesn't survive a conflict or an offense. And the third one is that the relationship doesn't survive transition. And really, I mean, most things that you see happen in a relationship boil down to, I think, one of those three categories. That it was either we were unable to maintain our unity when a sin occurred, when a conflict occurred, or when there was simply a transition. Maybe it was neither good nor bad, good nor evil. It was just a transition and we didn't survive it for whatever reason in the relationship had a breaking. And so I want to look through um, those three categories and maybe give some encouragement and insight on how we can maintain unity in our relationships because we want to see <laughs> the blessings of God. We want to see the power of God. We want God to take notice of our unity <laughs> for the good thing. <laughs> we want our prayers answered. We want to, his presence to be with us. So we want to take advantage and continue to build the unity. Um, the first one, sin in a relationship. And that can be you know, there is a variety of sin. Jesus said so many. He had so many things that you know. I say unto you. I say unto you. It was so many of them were about relationships with one another. Do unto others. One to another. Bear with one another's burdens. Encourage one another. Don't look down upon one another. It was all instruction about relationship. And sin in a relationship can be jealousy, can be envy, can be murmuring, can be lying, can be stealing. Um, selfishness, bitterness, pride, judgment. I mean, even if you can think of, you know, really, I, I say major sin in the sense of the consequences of it. All sin is sin to God. So, you know, there are no different levels of sin in the eyes of God, but there are different levels of consequences on the earth. And, you know, depending on if it's breaking a civil law, the consequences you might suffer You know, committing adultery is a little bit worse than maybe gossip. You might have some more serious consequences in the relationship to repair and rebuild (laughs) for some of those more extreme sins and offenses against the relationship than, you know, say, a selfishness. You know, killing somebody (laughs) might have some (laughs) greater consequences than being selfish, but all sin is going to affect a relationship. and it's, you know, the word talks about it's the little foxes that spoil the vine, and it's the little things that creep in in our relationships. Gossip is a huge one, you know? I mean, I, I, I tell this story, but still, to this day, with all the technology that we have, gossip is still the fastest way to find anything out. I'm telling you. <laughs> I, this was several years ago. was not here in this church or in Virginia, but um, I was... Driving home, and I got in a car accident. This guy had run a light and just plowed into me. And so I'm on the side of the road, and the cop is there, and you know, the other. So you're doing all the stuff you do in an accident. And this is before the day of everybody having a cell phone in their pocket, too, mind you. So this is just the true power of the grapevine. So, you know, I'm still at the accident. I had a cell phone at that time. It was one of the giant ones, you know, that like stuck in your pocket and it stuck out five feet. But, you know, so I'm still at the accident. The police is interviewing both of us and taking the report, and and my phone rings. And, you know, the officer was interviewing the other person, so I answered the phone, and it was my pastor's wife saying, oh, I heard you were in an accident. Are you okay? Is everything okay? I was like, I'm still here. (laughs) Somebody had driven by and seen me i gotten home. I don't even know how many calls whatnot had transpired through all that. And, you know, I hadn't even left the scene of the accident. And the entire church already knew that there had been a wreck and people were calling me to see how I was. <laughs> I mean, you know, which that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, technology and the grapevine working quickly is, again, good for the right purpose, unity for the right purpose. Let's get people praying. Oh, my goodness, somebody's going to the hospital. Boom, we can have everybody praying. But... Boy, I tell you, you know, gossip, nothing can kill relationships and kill a church faster than gossip. Mm -hmm. And we're horrible at it. And I can vouch and I repent of my own because I have, you know, certainly been guilty of it as much as anybody else. And it creeps in and you don't realize it. But, you know, every one of us, you know, we all, and let me just tell you this now so you know, everybody has an opinion about everything else that everybody should be doing Mm -hmm. or not doing. I, I'm telling you what, everybody has an opinion about what you should or shouldn't be doing with your money, how you should or shouldn't be raising your kids, what job you should or shouldn't be pursuing, you, how you do or don't keep your house, <laughs> and we all talk about it to each other, and I know that we do, because I've talked to each one of you about it, so. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's the reality is, you know, we we slip from that place of, you know, conversation, not to say that it's ever wrong to converse about things going on in somebody else's life but you know you add gossip and judgment and boom you start burning up relationships in no time you know it, and it's very that and then throw some hypocrisy in there too i mean i've listened to people talk about you know how so and so eats and what their diet's like, When I thought, well, talk to me when you're not 50 pounds overweight, and, you know, or, well, I think they need to be doing such and such with their money, and can you believe they spent their money on that, and I thought, well, you just sat here five minutes ago and told me how you can't pay any one of your bills, so, you know, it's like, and I am the first to repent right now. I repent to all of you. Please forgive me for anything that I have said and contributed that's caused offense and breakdown in the unity in our relationships, in our church. And we all should be on our faces before God. I think if we all talked about 75% less, (laughs) we would be okay. (laughs) Or maybe it's just me, and I just happen to hear a lot of it. But, you know, it's, and, you know, people are like, oh, well, it's so bad. And I thought, you know, and it's not unique. It's been in every workplace and every church I've ever been in. So this is not a problem uncommon to humankind, but, you know, we need to be aware of it. Fortunately, the cure to sin in a relationship is be quick to repent and forgive. Mm-hmm. That's all. It's not complicated. <laughs> Catch yourself, repent, <laughs> and if you need to do something to make it right in the relationship, then do that too, you know? If you stole something from somebody, you better bring it back and, you know, with some restitution to make it right. If you broke a confidence, if you lied, then you need to go, confess, and, you know, go an extra mile to make it right. So it's not, you know, sin, of all of these, not to dismiss sin, but sin can be the easiest one to deal with, (laughs) especially with the Lord. I mean, just repent, shut my mouth, (laughs) and make it right. (laughs) Now, I separated sin and conflict. I used to just always say the two things that, you know, break down the unity in relationships were conflict or transition, not surviving conflict or transition, but I realized, you know, the sin issue really can be separate. Not all conflict is necessarily because of a sin that happened. You know, you can have a conflict where there wasn't a right or wrong done. You know, if you have any relationships that last for any amount of time beyond a couple days and have any depth to them other than talking about the weather, you're going to have a conflict in relationships. And that's normal because If you've never had a conflict, I'd be a little concerned that perhaps you're maybe a doormat and had no opinions and let everybody walk all over you. I mean, at some point, you're going to have a difference of opinion with somebody that could lead to some kind of conflict. You know, hey, Chris, let's go out to eat afterwards. I think Applebee sounds good. Oh, I want to go for wings. Well, you know what? All of a sudden, we have a conflict. (laughs) How we decide to work out this difference of opinion, neither one of us is right or wrong, will determine what happens. You know, it doesn't have to be anything more than, oh, okay, let's go for wings. I mean, it can just be fine, or you can have major conflict. But running into that is just very normal. How we deal with it is what is going to determine if we maintain unity or if we have a breaking of relationship. Scripture talks about, you know, in Proverbs, the first one to bring their case seems right till another comes along and tells their story. (laughs) You know, there are two sides everything and so many of the times there's right and wrong on both sides fortunately or unfortunately depending on how you want to look at it things are not clear-cut I mean they're not other than you know I think the random cases of somebody coming in and you know stabbing you or (laughs) I mean other than those kind of extreme things in your average day-to-day conflict in relationships very rarely is there clear absolutely right and absolutely wrong. And in most people's minds, they're right. From their point of view, how they see it is right. You know, (laughs) Scripture also says, you know, every man does what is right in his own eyes. We think that we're right, and in things that are very gray areas, it, it can be hard to work out. And sometimes it is our own sin gets in there, and then we compound it and make it worse. But one thing I will say about conflict in relationships, to maintain unity, you have to deal with it you have to deal with it. Amen. If you can't resolve it in and of yourself, say somebody, you you know, a friend, a, another church member, a coworker, whatever, offends you. If you're not able to forgive that, let it go, and the relationship's okay, and then you have to deal with that, with that person. Nothing gets better by not dealing with it. I mean, I think about, I have ruined a car this way. I had a Um, Some of you remember my blue car. I ruined that car. It was a fabulous life lesson for me about, you know, nothing gets better from ignoring it or lack of use. I mean, those of you who have done some work in some of these vacant houses, a vacant house just gets worse by ignoring it, not tending to it. it, It falls apart. I I ruined a car that way. It was starting to give a little bit of trouble, and I was worried, I was in fear about how much it was gonna cost. I wasn't sure what was wrong. So I didn't take it to the shop because I was afraid of what could come. I was afraid of the unknown, and so I let it sit. I happened to be a two-car family at that time. <laughs> and so I just always drove the other car. I never drove that car for several months until it came due for the inspection. So then I knew I had to suck it up and bring it in. I take it in, and the problem that I was concerned about was a $38 fix. Mm-hmm. It was just a vacuum hose that was clogged and needed to be replaced, something with the engine. So even though it seemed like it was an awful thing when I was driving it, $38 fix. But by letting it sit and not deal with it, the brake systems, some things that were on the edge, it ended up incurring over $2,000 worth of repairs that needed to be done from the lack of use and the things that had rotted out. and. Deteriorated from not being driven because cars are made to be driven. So it was like my fear <laughs> if I would have dealt with the $38 thing, it wouldn't have been a $2,000 thing. I thought, I mean, that was a huge life lesson for me. It's the same thing in relationships. We don't deal with it because we're afraid to have the confrontation. We're afraid to have the conversation. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a confrontation. And you know what? And when it comes to it in the relationship, it might be a $38 fix. But by the time we let it go, we mull it over in our heads, we talk ourselves into being even more mad, we get into some sin of bitterness, of judgment, maybe we're gossiping. Now we got a $2,000 fix on our hands. Mm -hmm. And like my car, it wasn't worth the $2,000 fix, and I scrapped it. And how many times do we do that in relationships? We let it go, we let it go, till it snowballs, it gets so bad, we decide it's not worth the fix, and we scrap it. And we just broke unity, and we wonder why we're not seeing the power of God, the revival, the blessing, the answer to prayer in our churches because we got broken relationships all over the place. So, I mean, it, that might be a little extreme. Maybe we all don't just drop people like that. I hope we don't. Nobody here that I know of does. But, you know, I mean, I, I've had those that it seemed like it just got too difficult. It wasn't worth the fix just because we didn't deal with it. You got to deal with it. And deal with it sooner rather than later, because it will only get worse if you don't deal with it. So uh, some tips about surviving conflict in a relationship, how to overcome it. You know, I think, you know, there are different courses that, especially business things, you know, conflict resolution, anger management, all those kinds of things. It's not necessarily bad skills to learn. You've got to learn how to resolve conflict in life if you ever want to maintain any sort of relationship. So it's good, and it's an art. It's not a science. You can't just get steps one, two, three, and now every conflict you have is going to be resolved. People aren't that simple. Never going to work that way. Um, I'll, I'd like to give a few tips that I think help. They're, you know, general things. But the first is, if you have an offense or conflict in a relationship, search your own heart for sin or a wound issue that contributed to it if you were the one who got offended, (laughs) was it really because of what happened or was it because of something in you? You know, a great place to start and anything is with yourself. (laughs) So take a look, you know, do I have some of my own sin or my own wounding that caused this to get to where it is? And if so, again, it's repent and quickly forgive. Second thing that will really help in conflicts and relationships and dealing with offenses is listen and acknowledge the other person's point of view you don't have to agree with it but you know most people they just they want to be heard and they want to know that you care what their feelings are and if you can step out of defending your own position long enough to listen and see somebody else's point of view even though they may be 100 percent wrong but if you can at least make an effort to try and see how they got to the conclusion, especially if they're the ones offended. Have you ever been in that position? You have no idea why somebody else is offended, but they horribly are. And to sit down and rather say, well, I don't know what the big deal is, to argue, to defend yourself, to try and put yourself to see from their point of view. You may or may not agree, but if you can at least listen and acknowledge, I could see where you might have you know, thought that. It goes a long way. This next one is really my own preference, and I've heard valid arguments to doing it other ways. If it's something minor, maybe not, but if you've got a good offense going in a relationship, I suggest trying to resolve it in person. Email, and, and like I said, I've heard valid arguments of, well, want to send an email. So then they wouldn't feel like they had to respond right away. And email might be a great way to at least initiate something, especially if you've been on the outs. Um, But email is hard, and actually because of the delay response time, I mean, maybe I'm the only one who does this, but then you you rehearse it all in your mind, you reword it in your mind. You have no idea what their tone was. If you're already offended, you take offense at whatever was said. Well, if the email was only two sentences, well, that's all they had to say to me. If the email was five miles long, well, you know, give it up already. You know, why don't you just be quiet and listen? You know, <laughs> it's like we can continue to just talk and talk and talk ourselves in our minds into being more and more offended. Whereas when you're face-to-face with somebody that you have a relationship with, even though you're, you could be offended at them, you could be hurt, you, whatever it is, it's much easier when you get face-to-face, spirit-to-spirit, you can hear one another out it's, it's very easy to pop off stuff in an email that you wouldn't say in person. It's easier to misinterpret things. So I encourage you, if you've got something that really is an issue, um, if you can do it face-to-face, I encourage it. Um, like I said, email might be a great way to initiate a conversation to try and get face-to-face. Or maybe it's somebody long distance, and you know, you try to pick up the phone, and, or you never, your different time zones, it's never going to happen. But face-to-face is good. It's much easier to love and forgive somebody who's right in front of your face if, if it's somebody you love. You know? And then another tip in resolving conflict and maintaining unity, apologize. Apologies are, they are a rare commodity these days. And most people don't know how to do them. Lots of people think it's a sign of weakness. But really, it takes a confident, <laughs> bold, willing to lay it on the line. It takes courage to make an apology, especially if you don't think you did anything wrong. But you know what? I bet you can find something that you can apologize for. Something. I was friends, am friends, with two people. They had a conflict. It had zero to do with me. Absolutely nothing. I was not involved in any way, shape, or form. It was entirely between two other people. And One of them got horribly mad at me, even though I had nothing to do with it. And I was like, okay, this is not fair. I had zero to do with it. We have not even talked about this. But, you know, this person kind of vanished, stopped speaking to me. I thought, what the heck? And, you know, very quickly, this person came around and came to me and, you know, repented and asked for forgiveness and said, look, I got really mad and took this out on you, and I know you had nothing to do with it. Please forgive me. You know, I mean, this was a case where it really was 100% somebody else. It wasn't me at all. It had nothing to do with it. But find something in there to apologize for, <laughs> especially when somebody has thrown themselves out on a limb to try and make it right and apologize to you. You know, forgive quickly. You know, I, I forgive you. I understand you were really upset. And please forgive me for being mad at you, for being mad at me. I mean, I apologize because ultimately, really, I did throw my own sin into the situation. I got mad right back. <laughs> well, how dare you? Well, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know, an apology is a great way to bring a quick resolution. It's a great way to diffuse a situation. You know, and it really it takes a big person to apologize, especially if you don't feel like you did anything wrong. And I'm I'm saying you know keep this in balance. Not to say that you always have to be the one to apologize, especially if it's the same person over and over again. You don't need to be a doormat, but. What type of person lets people think something wrong of them and believe something that's not true and is willing to be crucified for it for the sake of redemption in a relationship? I mean, isn't that exactly what Jesus did? They all thought he was nuts. They didn't think he was who he was. He let them believe. I mean, everybody believed wrong things about him to the point of they crucified him for it. But he was willing to endure it for the higher purpose of he wanted to bring restoration and unity back into relationship with people and God. You know, there's an apology is an art, um, you know, say I do something and Laura takes offense. You don't mind if I use you, right? (laughs) So say I do something and Laura gets offended over it. And, you know, for sake of example, let's say I did absolutely nothing wrong. I am 100% right, committed no offense, no sin but she's now hurt and upset. Okay, if the best you can do is a, I'm sorry you took it that way, don't apologize. (laughs) I'm sorry you took it that way is not an apology. If you listen to it, I'm sorry you took it that way. It's a statement of blame. I just now put it on Laura, the entire problem of the offense. I really wasn't sorry. I wasn't making an effort to try and make anything better, even though it had the words, I'm sorry. And I might even say, and I could genuinely mean it, I'm sorry you took it that way. I really did not mean to do anything to offend you. It sounds okay, but it's really not an apology if you think about it. Now, the reality is I love and care about Laura. And even though I didn't do anything wrong, in her mind, my action caused her pain. She feels like I hurt her. So you know what? I can be sorry that she's hurt. I can be sorry that whatever it was I did, I hurt her. You can apologize for that. It's not admitting you did anything wrong, but, you know, you can apologize. I am really sorry I hurt you. It wasn't my intention at all. I mean, it's just such a subtle difference, but that's a genuine apology, you know? And I have been on both sides of that. I I mean, I've gotten the, well, I'm sorry you took it that way response. Which, I mean, really, it's just an insult. That's like saying, I'm sorry, you're an idiot. (laughs) Like, you know, if that's the best you can do, don't apologize. But I've been on the end of, you know, even recently, another person and I, we had a couple exchanges through email. There was an offense there. You know, next thing I know, this person, and was coming to me face to face and said, I'm really sorry I hurt you. And, you know, from their point of view, I can honestly see what they were offended about. And from my point of view, I can see why I was offended. And it's really hard, it's like a game of tennis offense. <laughs> you know, you're lobbying something back and forth and most people, their conflict resolution is just to defend each other long enough until somebody cracks. But, <laughs> you know, it's, the game's over as soon as somebody says, I'm sorry. You want to end a, end a conflict and bring yourselves back into unity. I had a conversation, you know, recently. It, it really was honestly an ongoing issue and an ongoing offense with this person. You know, we had had one face-to-face already. Nothing was working, and, you know, the relationship was getting strained, and it was getting to the point of this isn't worth a $2,000 fix. That's what it's starting to feel like, and you got to, I mean, when you're in those situations, you have to remember why you're in a relationship in the first place. You know, is this your family member? Is this your spouse? <laughs> is this your, you know, a God-appointed uh, connection Is this, you know, your best friend? Obviously, you have a long enough history. There's a reason you're in the relationship in the first place. And, you know, so we're going round and round and cycling back and forth and not understanding each other, not seeing each other's point of view. And at one point, something was said that hadn't been said to that point. And basically, this other person felt like, in an instance, that I had been disrespectful. It was like, boom, I had my window of something to apologize for because they were absolutely right. In that case, you know, I had handled it poorly and I had been disrespectful. I said, you know, right then and there, I'm like, yeah, I can, you know, you're absolutely right. I should have handled that differently. That was disrespectful. Please forgive me for that. I'm sorry. The whole conversation shifted after that. You know, it's like... (laughs) Rats are attracted to garbage, and when you're offended, those demons of bitterness and judgment and everything, they just hang around you like a cloud. I mean, don't you just feel sick to your stomach when you're seriously offended at somebody? And it's like, boy, when apology comes, when forgiveness comes, I mean, demons don't want to hang around that. They're gone. (laughs) It's like, you know, everything turned around to where unity was restored. You know, conflict isn't easy, and it isn't fun, but it's not so much that you never have a conflict with somebody. It's can you get through it? Can you stay in relationship? You know, and not that everybody is going to be, you know, close best friends. You know, it's you can resolve something or move past it without having a breaking of the relationship. So that's conflict. You know, I mean Romans 12:18 talks about as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. You know, you can't control what somebody else is going to do. But as far as it depends on you, for your part, you can make the effort to try and bring peace to a relationship, to try and bring restoration. The third thing that a lot of relationships don't survive and they don't maintain unity is transition. And This is an interesting one because it really is not not something bad. It's not a conflict. But if you have a relationship that lasts any decent amount of time, you're going to have a transition of some kind. Parents and their children, if that relationship is going to transition as they grow up, You know, how they relate to the infant compared to the toddler, compared to the teenager. And then as an adult, that's a transition in relationship. And if they don't survive that transition, I mean, have you not seen children who – children, 30-year-old, 40-year-old children who still respond and interact with their parents like they're still the 15-year-old and their parents are just being awful and they expect to be given everything and it's like – are you twelve, or, or vice versa? Parents who treat their grown children like ten-year-olds or like fifteen-year-olds—you know—if you don't make that transition into where now you can relate to each other, see, see this person who, yes, they're your mother or your father or who, excuse me, whoever—and you still will always honor and respect them for that role in your life, but you can now relate as adults. You can respect and love and interact and have a friendship on a level that you can't when you're, you know, seven and your parents or even at 15. So it's like you got to make that transition. Um, You know, geographic moves, that's another transition in relationships. Somebody moves away. The relationship has to shift. It just, you know, by reality of what it is, it has to shift. And, you know, sometimes relationships just don't survive that. And sometimes the shift is okay, you know, I don't think that we're all meant to be, you know, best friends where we talk to each other daily with every single person that we meet for the rest of our lives. It's not really feasible and I think some people are just in our lives for our seasons. But you can make that transition to where you're not necessarily in touch anymore without having a breaking. You know, do you see the difference? I mean, I've had people that, you know, all my high school classmates, for example. You know, I, I'm not in touch with any of them, not a single one. <laughs> But, you know, most of them, it wasn't because there was some sort of conflict or breaking of the relationship. It was just we transitioned, we all moved away, we're not in touch. If I saw them now, things would be fine. You know, same thing with people I've been in in different churches. There was no breaking. It was just natural transition of people moving away, growing, things changing. Um, Sometimes relationships don't survive the transition of if they were based on surrounding an activity. You know, school, for example, or you're in a sport together or you're in a ministry group together and then for whatever reason one of you or both of you or the whole ministry changes and you know that relationship has to change and how you choose to survive or not survive that transition um, you know family and friends and marriages those kinds of things you can survive or not survive the transition It wasn't necessarily good or bad but you know sometimes people just they have a breaking where a breaking wasn't necessary but it's just because we didn't survive. I had, um, I mean, I've got, and I've done this well and I've done this poorly. I mean, I've had some friendships that didn't survive the transition and it was my fault. Um, You know, I can think of one in particular. I was roommates with this gal. We were very close friends and we hit boom, like total transition in our lives. She was getting married and I was moving out of state. I mean, pretty much everything that could change, we were in ministry together, all kinds of things. Everything that could change, changed. And I didn't adjust my expectations of the relationship. was used to, I mean, we were roommates, we were hung out, we were very good friends, talking all the time. And so, you know, we moved, and I'm like on the phone, I'm on the email, and, you know, and she's kind of like, don't you have a life there <laughs> kind of thing, and chill out. And honestly, you know, and this was a very long time ago, and um, she was several years older than I was, and I was immature. And, you know, I got offended over her not... Wanting to maintain that same level in my mind of relationship. And she eventually just kind of cut me off. She just stopped responding to the emails, to the phone calls. And, you know, it it was a breaking that didn't have to happen, but we just didn't survive the transition. And really, and that one was on me. I, you know, have since learned (laughs) a few things and grown up a bit. I've had some that have survived really well, though. I mean, I think of some of my college roommates, you know, wonderful Christians, love each other in each other's wedding transition of, we're not in school together anymore. We don't live in the same state. She's married and has children, but we're still in unity in the relationship. If I saw her tomorrow, we'd be perfectly fine. I mean, we rarely call or email. We're just, you know, the relationship has changed, and it's okay that it's changed as far as keeping in touch, and when we are in touch, we enjoy each other <laughs> very much. We catch up on everything. We talk about, you know, love life in the Lord, and You know, everything in between, and it's good, but, you know, I mean, that's one that worked, that survived the transitions. Um, Not all do, but um, that one did. Actually, and, you know, you all know Sarah. Sarah's a great example. Her and I relationship has been through tremendous transition. You know, I was a youth director in my 20s, and she was a freshman in high school when we first met each other. I mean, we had a, you know, I was a leader. She was a youth. Um, you know, we went through that transition of you know, now both being adults. At one point we lived under the same roof, then we lived in different states. We had the geographical transition, you know, she's since gotten married. We had that transition, she and Caleb had a baby. You know, we have been through all sorts of transitions to where, and it's really been a blessing to have a relationship that, because of the overarching vision of, you know, why did you choose to walk together? that that relationship has stayed intact and stayed in unity you know where she can submit to my authority in a ministry setting i can submit to her authority in a ministry setting she's been prophetic team leader and i was you know on the team with her i mean all kinds of transitions but it's okay you know you can have people come and go through various seasons of life and you know we just have to adjust our the tip to surviving transition is adjusting our expectation not trying to hold it to what it was if things have changed. It's probably okay that it changed and, you know, nurture and enjoy that relationship for what it is and where it's at. You know, I enjoy my college roommate, even though we only talk once every couple of years, maybe we only see each other once every 10, it seems like, but, you know, I enjoy that relationship and I enjoy her and, you know, when we get the emails or the pictures, it's a good thing, you know, and ultimately, we want to see the blessings of unity. If you turn to Psalm 133, I want to end on this. Probably very familiar scripture. It gets talked about a lot. It's a real short one, just three verses. It says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes, as if, it, as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing forever. Um, and some translations you know, say, you know, for there the Lord commands the blessing. But it's like how good and pleasant it is when the brothers live together in unity. You know. And we have to remember that our, <laughs> our unity or our disunity... Really does affect other people, even here where it talks about like the oil running down the head and down the beard, or like the dew on the mountains. Like, have you been around people that you know they're not okay with each other? It affects the whole atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Whereas the reverse, when people are <laughs> friendly and in unity, it brings blessing to the atmosphere. And the scripture says, you know, where we dwell in unity, the Lord commands the blessing. The blessing can't not be there because God commands it to be there, and that's what we want to enjoy in our lives. We want to enjoy the provision, even like Ecclesiastes talk about, you know, two are better than one, and there's the blessing of being together and the unity. The you know, one can put a thousand to flight, but two can put ten thousand to flight. There's a multiplication of our efforts in unity when we're together, and that's what we want to do is to seek that kingdom unity. Obviously, everyone in the body of Christ, isn't going to go to the same church, and that's okay. You know, Sarah and Caleb, another, use them as an example again, have switched churches. There's not been any breaking of unity. It's about the heart and the relationship. You can have a bunch of people in a room together. doesn't mean they're united, but what we want is to be united in the Lord, remembering the higher purpose, why we're together and in relationship, that we want to survive the sin, survive the offenses, survive the transitions, and maintain unity so that we can inherit the blessing. Yes and amen. Yes. Well, let's pray. Lord God, we do want to be in unity, even as you prayed for us, and we pray it again, Lord God, that you would keep our hearts and minds in perfect peace, and that you would keep us in unity with one another that we may truly all be one. God, I thank you for the grace and the wisdom and the maturity for all of us to acknowledge where we may have sinned to repent that you give us grace and wisdom to make things right with anybody we need to make things right with whether it's in our family in our church co-workers Lord I thank you that you'd even sharpen and increase our skill to be wise in relationships for that unity to begin at the ground level and be a solid foundation Lord that we would receive your blessing that we would see prayers answered, Lord, that in our agreement to remain together in heart and in spirit because of what you have called us to for the greater purposes of your kingdom, Lord God, that we would see your power and your glory manifest in our lives, Lord, as we choose to walk in love and unity with one another. I just ask blessing upon this group. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Destiny Spirit Church or additional teaching CDs or training events, please visit our website at www.destinyspirit.com or you can write to us at Destiny Spirit Church, P.O. Box 15252, Chesapeake, Virginia, 23328. Thank you.